All right, everyone, we're going to be in Psalm 3. So grab your Bible if you brought it with you. Grab one from the pew in front of you. Or if you're at home, pause and uh, grab a Bible and come back because we are going to work through this uh, text together. I need you guys to know about a failed career I once had. I worked one night in a haunted forest. Uh, I was in high school, and my friend's older brother ran this haunted forest. He's like, I need people to jump out and scare other people. And it's like, sounds awesome. And you learn something about how people handle fear when you work for four total hours in your whole life in a haunted forest. Uh, you, run that, you, you learn that running away is like the most common thing, like screaming, something audible, and running away um, is what a lot of people do. There's also a small subset of people that just freeze and they just stare. There's, a, there's an even smaller subset of people that kind of fall down. Um, there's a, the tiniest subset of people who get angry, and it kind of scared me. Um, and then there's the smallest of all, that small set of people who just laughs at you. And those are the people I like the best. <laughs> they were not scared at all. Um, what do we do with our fears? What do you do when you're afraid? Um, I, every year, the American Psychological Association puts out a, um, a, a study called Stress in America. And what they do is they try to examine, hey, what are the things that are freaking Americans out the most, <laughs> right? What are the things that are causing the most uh, anxiety, the most worry, the most concern, the most stress? And this was a unique year. They, what they realized was there's kind of a whole new list of things on the Stress in America study this year. And so they discovered 87% of American adults um, now say that the rise in prices of everyday items due to inflation is the cause of significant stress in their life significant concern. Also on that list is the Russian invasion of Ukraine, the economy, housing, and personal finances. 66% of American adults say that with each new variant of the COVID-19 uh, uh, virus, they're afraid the pandemic will never end. Adults report experiencing relational strain at levels they've never experienced before. As a matter of fact, according to the APA, 87% of, uh, of American adults say the constant stream of crises over the past two years without a break is the source of significant stress. And so as part of their documents, they say the ongoing coexistence with stressors, these stressors suggests that adults are enduring but not recovering that we're making it through the things that are causing us fear and worry and, and, and anxiety and concern, but we're not necessarily thriving in the midst of it, and you don't have to raise your hands, but do you agree? <laughs> right? And then think about all the things we could add on to it that aren't just kind of in the world, but are in our personal lives that maybe no one knows about. Think about the concern that you maybe have just in um, caring for your adult parents or your children or the concerns you might have over your job and like, is your job secure? Is it gonna pay enough to make it moving forward? Or, or is the money coming in enough to meet the expenses going out? Or maybe there's a hard medical diagnosis in your life, or maybe there's a hard medical diagnosis in the life of someone you love, or maybe you're wrestling with loss or a strained relationship and you start piling it on and all of a sudden we start realizing that for many of us, we are living in a time where the pressure and the fear and the worry and the concern and the, the stressors are very significant. Now, you may be one of the people, the, the, the very few people who don't experience that, and way to go, I'm very proud of you. <laughs> uh, but if you're like me, you might know a taste of what we're talking about this morning. 
And so does scripture have an answer for us? I mean, what do we do when we're afraid? What do we do when these things pile up and it just seems overwhelming and too much? And what we're gonna see is that the psalmist, the, the, the psalms are really gonna teach us that we don't stuff it, we don't ignore it and pretend that our fears aren't real and just move forward, but we also don't give it free reign and allow it to, to dominate us and change us. Instead, what we're gonna see is can we hold those fears and those concerns and those worries in light of who we believe God to be? And so let's see David walk us through this process. Maybe David has a little bit more knowledge of fear than Jocelyn did working in a haunted forest. And maybe he can teach us something this morning. So would you read with me? This is a short psalm. This is Psalm 3, starting in verse 1. A psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there's no salvation for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek and you break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Let's pray. God, I do ask that for those of us in this room who this may be um, close to home for, that you would encourage us to hold those things that pile up against us in light of a God who knows us and loves us. God, would your Holy Spirit do his work this morning? We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we're actually, keep your Bible open, because we're actually just going to work through the Psalms. Uh, David's going to do all the work for us. We're just going to take it stanza by stanza, and we'll see that as he goes through the Psalm, we see the first two verses are going to examine the threat that overwhelms the next two verses, the faithfulness of God, the next stanza, the trust of David, and then finally a prayer for help, and then we'll, well, at the end, we'll kind of see what that has to do with us. So we'll work through this Psalm together. So turn your attention with me to that very first stanza, those two verses, and we'll see that this is one of the Psalms that has a super description to it. So it has some little words that go in front of it. We're told that this psalm is a psalm of David, like a, a number of psalms in, in the book of Psalms are. Either David himself wrote them or they're written to go with David in his, uh, in his situation. And then there's about a dozen of those psalms that are connected to a specific biographical event in David's life. And this is one of those. So Psalm 3 is connected to, we're told here, when, when David fled from Absalom, his son. Now, extra credit, bonus work, homework. You can go home today and you can read 2 Samuel. You can read exactly the story. You can read 2 Samuel. Um, you can really start in chapter 13 and go to 19 and get the whole saga of David and Absalom and his children. Or you can focus in on chapter 15 where, where it really connects with the, um, with the text that we're reading this morning. But we'll see a record of what happens. David is an older man. He has adult children. He has established the kingdom and the capital in Jerusalem. And all of a sudden, words comes to him that his son Absalom, who, by the way, is handsome and popular and is like a great speaker and does everything. He's got a lot going for him, Absalom. Word comes to David in Jerusalem that Absalom has begun a conspiracy against David. 
Absalom has begun a rebellion against David, and he's marching into the city, and he's going to take over the kingdom from David. And so David flees. David runs away from his own son, who's come to, who's come to kill him. Scripture says that there's 12,000 people that Absalom has gathered to come and take, uh, take the kingdom from David and take everything that belongs to him. It's a desperate situation. It's a scary situation. Of course, David says he's surrounded. Look back down at verses 1 and 2. He says, Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying, and that repeated many, you get the sense that there's this, this panic David has cried out, oh Lord, that's not like a, a form of formal address. He's freaking out. Does anyone know that? Like, have you ever been at that point where you're freaking out and all you can be is like, ah, God help me, right? This is where David is. He's freaking out. And the, the panic and the desperation are building up with that repeated phrase, many are, are coming at me. And so this cry of pain is, is coming because he's surrounded, the worries and the fears and the, the, the opposition is piling up all around him. These were also people David knew. You guys, his very son, his son is the cause of, the, is the immediate cause of what's going on. And so these are people who had formerly pledged allegiance to David. These are people who were part of David's kingdom. These are people part of, who were part of David's family, and now they have turned against him. And not only are they surrounding him, they're rising up against him. That phrase has to do with like coming forward with hostile intentions. As a matter of fact, the first time that phrase is used in Scripture is in Genesis 4 when we're told that Cain rose up and killed his brother Abel. These people have hostile intent towards David. And not only that, but they're calling into question David's very identity. Did you see what they say in verse 2? David says, many are saying of my soul. He says, many are saying uh, what's true about me on the inside. Here's what he says. Many are saying of my soul, there's no salvation for him in God. So it's not just that he's surrounded by enemies, but he's surrounded by enemies who are saying, God's done with you, David. You you can't look to him for help anymore. He's turned his back on you. And this forms the central theological question of this psalm because the question really is being posed by these enemies of David, and they're saying, hey, God, can God actually help you, David? Like, do you really think God is going to come to your rescue? And so their question seems to assume that God either can't deliver David or doesn't want to deliver David. So either God isn't powerful enough to help David out of this completely desperate situation or God has lost all loyalty to David, that God just isn't on his side anymore. And they had reason to think this. Because just after David had had all this victory and he had come into the city of Jerusalem, just as he had all these things going right for him, he makes a massive mistake and he sexually assaults Bathsheba, and he murders Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, and, and his sin just falls down on him, and everything crumbles. And that began a, began a series of problems in David's reign and in David's family that, the, of course, people around him would say, it seems that God has deserted David. Look at how everything has fallen apart. So the threat is overwhelming David's literally on the run for his life. But then there's an abrupt change. 
Something happens and, and David makes a different choice. Instead of looking at them out there, all the troubles that are surrounding him, all the things that are calling him, causing him worry or concern, he chooses to shift his focus. And we see, we see in the next stanza, we see the faithfulness of God. David's going to explore the faithfulness of God. Look back down at verse 3. Those famous words in Scripture that change everything. David says, look, my enemies are around, all around me, but you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory, the lifter of my head. David changes his perspective. And in that instant, what happens is key for us to understand. Because in that very instant, what happens is that the psalmist, the person writing the poem, David himself, involves God in the drama of his pain and his fear and his worry. All of a sudden, he's made a choice. I need to get God involved here because things are overwhelming. And I need to change my perspective. And he says these handful of things about who God actually is. The first thing he says, he says, God is a shield about me. Now, that would be something we're tempted to read past, right? We read Psalms pretty quick. Okay, it's something poetic. But let's just pause, pump the brakes here, and think about what it means for David to say God is a shield around him. I may have mentioned it before, but um, when I was a young person in, in like grade school all the way through high school, I played softball. And somewhere as a young girl, a coach said, let's make Jocelyn a catcher, okay? And I thought that was cool because you got to do things. Like I thought the world's most boring thing would be an outfielder because you you would just stand out there and I was like, awesome, let me be a catcher. That sounds like fun. Like you get to touch the ball, you get to throw it and catch it. Sounds great. And then they put this equipment on you. right? And they put these like shin guards on you and they put this like chest protector and this little helmet and you're like, okay. And it's, it's not really a big deal. And then you start getting older and the pitchers start throwing faster and, and the, the, the players start getting stronger. And what happens is your equipment gets more significant, right? So by the time that I got to be in high school, I had this like helmet, right? Not just a mask. And you have this like thing with like actually has shoulders on it and like these things that'll cover your knees because nothing, friends, nothing prepares you for the first time a pitcher throws a ball and it gets fouled off right into your face, right? And all of a sudden you're like, I get it. I needed this, right? I, I'm protected. I needed protection. Hear what David is saying, you guys. He's saying God is a shield, and he knows he needs a shield. Because listen, listen, having a shield presumes that there is danger. Needing a shield presumes that things are going to be what? Hard. Needing a shield presumes that there are threats that are going to come against us. There's going to be threats to our identity. Is God still on my side? There's going to be threats to our, to our sense of safety and well-being. And so to say God is a shield is to admit that life is difficult. Because you know what a shield does? Here's what a shield does. A shield, listen, a shield does not stop trouble from happening shield doesn't stop hard things from coming into your life. A shield doesn't stop those things that are worrying you and causing you anxiety and stress and concern. A shield doesn't do that. A shield doesn't stop trouble from happening. A shield stops trouble from harming. It doesn't stop trouble from happening. It stops trouble from harming. 
So David has shifted his focus and he said, I'm surrounded by all these things that are freaking me out. I'm surrounded by all these things that are calling into question, is God even present? Does he even care about me? And David is able to say, but God, I know you are a shield. I know that my trust in you, I know that you are protecting me, not from the trouble, but you're protecting me from the harm that the trouble causes. He also says what? He says God isn't just his shield, but God is his glory. That's a tough word for us. We don't, we don't use that word very much. But in the Old Testament, it has this idea of weightiness or significance. So someone's glory was what, what they built their reputation on. It was what was the best about them. It was what made them kind of who they were in the best sense. And so David says, here, you are my glory, God. But think about all the other things David could have gloried in. Think about the very beginning of David's story, right? Like, like God sends Samuel to announce and uh, anoint David out of all of his brothers. God sends the prophet Samuel to the, to the family of Jesse and says, hey, one of you guys is going to be king. And you remember this? Like, Jesse keeps bringing out all his handsomer, cooler, older brothers. And then and Samuel's like, is that all? And they're like, well, there's this dude, David. He's like the shepherd. We could go get him. Right? And David choose, or God chooses David to be his king. And David kind of starts this meteoric rise. Like one of the first things he does, you remember, is he defeats Goliath and the power of the Lord. And so it's just so clear, like God is with him, God favors him. We see that, that David becomes this mighty warrior. As a matter of fact, one of the first songs that's sung about David is what? Saul, who was the king before him, who, who wasn't who God had chosen. Saul has slain his thousands, they would sing, do you remember? But David has slain his tens of thousands. David is a mighty warrior. And David is a great leader. He gathers people around him. He's going to have tremendous victory. And when his kingship is established, he's going to go in and he's going to defeat the enemies all around. He's going to go into Jerusalem and he's going to establish God's capital city there. He is an important dude and he has this family and this legacy. God makes all these promises to him. He has everything going for him. And then in an instant, it's undone. In an instant, all of that is gone. He's not king anymore. He's running for his life. Well, well maybe, still, maybe he's still a mighty warrior. He's not. He's an old man. As a matter of fact, he's afraid of, afraid of the thousands. And they used to sing of him that he had slain his tens of thousands. Well, well maybe, maybe he has his morals. At least he's a good guy. No, he's not. He is messed up terribly. Well, well, at least he has his family. At least he's, he has a family. No, he doesn't. It's his very family that has turned against him. It's his mistakes that he's made with his own family that are coming home to roost and causing this problem. And anything that David might have taken glory in, his ability, his vocation, his money, his position, his family, his role as a father, his role as a husband, all of that is gone. Anything he might have gloried in has been undone. So David's at a place where he has to say, what is going to give my life significance any longer? What is going to give my life weight and meaning and purpose? And friends, some of you in this room, you have lived long enough to know that that is still true. That if we attach our, our sense of significance and our sense of worth and our ability to, to have a great job or our ability to make a lot of money or our ability to be a great parent or a great spouse, if we attach our significance in the world into those things, what we find is they are ultimately empty because they can go away like that. 
So David, in the middle of his fears, has to say, what gives my life glory? What gives my life significance and weight and reputation and meaning? And he realizes it's only God that matters. And then finally, he says that God lifts his head. God is the lifter of his head. It means exactly what you think it means. We use it the same way today. That when we tell someone to lift up your head, we're asking them to have confidence, to go back into the world with a sense that it's going to be okay. It's about hope and moving forward. And it's so important that this is here because we actually have recorded for us in 2 Samuel 15, in the middle of this story, we actually hear that as David is fleeing Jerusalem, that he and his household, that they go down and they, they leave the holy mountain of Zion and they cross over the, the Kidron Brook and they move up onto the Mount of Olives. And the way that it's recorded is that David has his head covered and he's barefoot and weeping as he goes. And yet somehow he has changed his perspective so that here he can say, God is the lifter of my head. The things that had seemed to defeated me, the things that had me sensing that the, the, the situation was impossible, that there was no way out, perhaps if I look to God, I might have reason to hope. And so David has a choice to make, and the choice is to trust as he moves into the next section of the psalm, he says something really interesting. He says, I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid. Friends, nothing's changed. His enemies are still there. The problems are still around him. The things that are causing him significant worry and significant concern, the things that are making him even question whether he has a connection with God anymore, those things are still around him. And yet, what does he do? He goes to sleep. You guys, there's some weird people in this room right now. You might be one of them. They're the people who can sleep on airplanes. What is wrong with you? You're literally in a metal tube with a bunch of strangers. And you're like, I'm going to get this little neck pillow, and I'm just going to take a little nap. That's so weird. I don't get it. Right? Like, I, I, the way I feel about that is the same way, like, have you ever camped where there's bears? Really, you're sleeping? Really? So a few weekends ago, we had our camp out for students, and we actually just camped out, put some tents out on the baseball field there. And, uh, and, and some people may have gotten some sleep, but I, I don't really sleep because what could happen? <laughs> what could go wrong? I need to pay attention, right? Um, and so for David to say here, what? David says what? He says, I lay down and I sleep. He's expressing something about his trust in God. He's expressing something in the middle of his flight, in the middle of his panic. He says, look, I'm going to lay down and I'm going to sleep. Why can he do that? The people are still chasing him. They haven't gone away. Well, he tells us, he says that the Lord has sustained him. There's some other monsters in this room. Uh, it's those of you, the handful of you guys who a, a number of months ago when I preached a sermon about how I kill plants gave me plants. <laughs> Thank you, but I have to sustain those plants, <laughs> right? And so I'm like stressed out. I'm like, okay, are they getting enough sun? Am I giving them water? Am I not giving them enough water? There's like a balance. They say touch it and is it dry? I don't know. Is it dry? Is it wet? I don't know what's, I don't know, right? Like, you guys sustain your plants, you sustain your pets, some of you sustain your children. You know what it means. You give them the resources they need to survive. 
And this is what David is saying. David is saying God is the one who has given him the resources that he needs to survive. There's some other kinds of people in this room. There are people in this room who would say, the Lord has sustained me. Because there are people in this room who say, I cannot explain the fact that I'm here any other way. I can't explain the fact that I got out of bed this morning and I'm going about life with all the trouble that has surrounded me, with all the hurt and the pain and the the things that cause me worry and anxiety. They walk into this room this morning and you're surrounded by people who know what it is to say the Lord has sustained me because what they know is they wouldn't have the resources any other way. So David is able to lie down and sleep because God is giving him what he needs. God is his shield. God is the one who has protected him. And so he prays at the end. The last uh, stanza or stanza or two, he says in verse seven, arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. For you strike all my enemies on the cheek and you break the teeth of the wicked. And some of you guys are like, oh, David, you went a little too far there, <laughs> right? right? Well, this isn't really like, go punch my enemies in the face, right? This is more like teach the people who are speaking against me, like give them justice. Close their mouths. It's kind of idiom that means kind of shut them up and defang them. Because I know that God can arise and save me. And so he prays. He prays for God to stand up, to get up, to act, and to defend. He prays that God would undermine the power and the rhetoric of his enemy. He prays that God would save. He prays that his enemies would get what they deserve, and everything becomes now reversed. David had noticed that he was surrounded by his enemies. They were all around him, and yet now he knows that God is a shield around him, and he can rest. David's enemies were rising against him, and here he calls God to rise for him to come and act on his behalf. He knows that David and David's enemies have kept saying, God won't or God can't come and rescue you, but this is exactly what David asks God to do. Come and save. And he says, by the way, that salvation is yours only, God. You're the only one who can do that. David knows there's nothing he can do in his impossible situation. There's nothing he can do to undo the things that are causing him the most fear and the most worry. He can't do anything about it. But David has taken the step that we all can take. And David has chosen to place his fears and his worries in front of a loving God. And so what about you? There are many, many reasons to fear. Just by nature of when we're alive right now, right, we can put a bunch of things on the list. (laughs) There's lots of things we can be concerned about right now in our world. But you probably have things that only you know. You probably have things that, that that are pressing in on you that are making you feel like you're in an impossible situation, that are making you feel powerless and helpless, and what can you do? And so the key question becomes for us, will we place our fears and our worries and our stresses and our anxieties in the context of a loving and good and sovereign and faithful God. 
Because here's what you need to know. From the beginning of this psalm to the end, nothing changes about David's circumstance. Nothing changes. He is still surrounded. Now what we know, if you do your homework and you go back and you read 2 Samuel, you know that everything actually ends up working. David returns to Jerusalem as king. But do you know what he does to make that happen? Absolutely nothing. Do you know what actually happens? Absalom's fancy hair gets stuck in a tree. I'm not kidding. His hair gets stuck in a tree and he dies, right? And all of a sudden, God is, or all of a sudden David is restored to the kingdom. God answers this prayer, but nothing changes in the middle of it. The circumstances remain. David has as many reasons to fear at the end of this psalm as he had at the beginning, but he has made a choice. And that choice was not to ignore the things that were freaking him out or to allow the things that were freaking him out to take control. His choice was to take that fear and to hold it up to God. He said, God, I'm afraid, and I am worried, and I am anxious, and I am freaking out here. And I need to think about who you are because you don't stop hard things from happening but you can stop the hard things from destroying me. So can we be like David? I also guess there's a fair number of people in this room who say, Jocelyn, I do this. My guess is there's very many people in this room right now who are like, I get it, Jocelyn, I believe that God is good. And I believe that God is loving, and yet I'm going through a really ridiculous situation, and it's, it's piling up on me. I don't even know how I'm going to get through the next day. And I, I'm, I'm stressed out here, and I am overwhelmed, and the world is pressing down on me, and, and I believe these things about God, but it doesn't change the fact that I am freaking out. So you need to know one important thing about this psalm. It obviously comes really early in the Psalter, right? It comes really early in the book of Psalms. And that's because most scholars believe that this is called a mourning psalm, not like a M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G psalm, but a M-O-R-N-I-N-G psalm. A song that you sing every morning. That every morning as you wake up, and as that, that sense of like dread and that sense of fear and that sense of worry and concern, as it's right there with you again in the morning, you teach your soul to sing this song again. And you take your attention and you take your fears once again every morning and you place them at the feet of a God who is a shield, who is your glory, and who is the lifter of your head. This isn't a song that you sing once. It's not a prayer that you pray one time. This is a prayer, friends, that we learn to pray every day of our lives. Because the trouble and the worry and the sense of overwhelming stress is with us. And so we become people who hold it in the presence of God. There's something about that picture of David, the retreating king, uh, that gets me. There's something about it that gets me. An, an older man walking out of the city that he thought was his, knowing that his family has crumbled around him. That picture of him with his head covered and his feet bare as he climbs up the Mount of Olives and he's, he's weeping. He's, he's, he's just, he's crushed. And he's wrecked, and there's something about that picture that haunts me. Because we know that another king, 
a thousand years later, stood on that same mountain. And instead of leaving the city of Jerusalem, that king was coming into the city of Jerusalem. Instead of running for his life, that king rides a donkey, his palm branches wave, and his people shout, Hosanna, it's like save us, is what Hosanna means, save us, son of what? David. So on that same mountain where David, the king, flees for his life, Jesus, the king, returns. But do you know what Jesus does? Do you, do you know that he weeps too when he comes into Jerusalem? David, the fleeing king, cries on the Mount of Olives. Jesus, the returning king, cries on the Mount of Olives. And Jesus looks over at the people he loves. He says, if only you had known what brings you peace. If only you had known what brings you peace. He looks at the people he loves. He says, you don't understand that prayer that David prayed in Psalm 3, that God would come and deliver, that he would arise. Here I am. I have come to save. I have risen and I'm coming to you, my people, to save you. We know something that David didn't, friends. God has answered this prayer. He's answered it in the person of Jesus Christ who knows you and loves you and wants to be part of your life so that as you bring your fear to him, you find a new way of living in the world because you know what's most important, which is an eternity with him forever, is never in jeopardy. Jesus was the answer to David's prayer so that you and I can rise every morning, hold our fears in front of a loving God, and say, God, come save me because I am afraid. But you are my shield, my glory, and the lifter of my head. Let's pray. God, there are many of us in this room who need you to arise. There's many of us in this room who, who need to see your deliverance. God, I ask that you would do that for them. But I know that for all of us, what we need most is a reminder that we don't have to pretend that life isn't scary or hard. And we also don't have to let the scary and hard things define us. But instead we can take those things and we can hold them up to you. And we can trust our fears and our worries and our struggles into the hands of a good, loving, and sovereign God. God, would you do that long work in us now? And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.